Welcome back to another edition of Sports Business Secrets. My name is Kevin Tarka. I am the founder of Creation Talent Agency, and I will be releasing a new podcast every single day for an entire year that is specifically designed to share the inevitable challenges of the sports business world and how to overcome them. I'm inviting you to join me in real time on my personal journey of representing professional basketball players, traveling the world, and continuously finding ways to battle through the adversity in this competitive industry. The goal is to share as many secrets as I can to help you along your own path to success. Welcome back to another edition of Sports Business Secrets. Today, I'm talking with founder of Rookie Scale and close friend of mine, John Chepkevich. For those who don't know John, he studied accounting and economics at the University of Notre Dame. He worked in the financial services industry for several years, focusing on projects in strategic planning, informational modeling, and uh, the collective bargaining agreement. He's done scouting work for pro teams overseas. He's an NBA draft and salary cap specialist, and most importantly, one of the guys that I call whenever I need another uh, opinion on talent evaluation. So welcome, John. What's up, KT? Thank you for having me, man. I appreciate the, the intro there. So, so you're a loyal and much appreciated podcast listener. So you know the drill by now. When I have a guest on, I give you know a minute or two, I give you the floor to kind of tell the audience a little bit about your background and you know how you started in this world of hoops. Yeah, sure. So I, I guess you know, starting away from the beginning, I grew up outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which, you know, isn't necessarily a hoops hotbed. Like we don't have a pro team. It's not necessarily where you see the most NBA talent coming from, but I loved basketball from an early age and, you know, played AAU all growing up in, you know, Western PA, West Virginia, Ohio, that kind of tri-state area. Um, you know, it was pretty, pretty good in high school and, had a preferred walk-on opportunity at Duquesne, which is, you know, local in Pittsburgh. But once I got into Notre Dame, that was, it was over then. I had, had That's to an easy to choice. Notre Dame. Yeah. I, uh, you know, loved Notre Dame from a young age. My, uh, my grandfather loved them and my brother kind of got into it through that. And so my whole family has been Irish fans for a long time, even though nobody actually like went to school there until me. So once I got in, that was kind of a dream and, you know, went to Notre Dame and like you alluded to, um, accounting and econ major there, which uh, I guess, you know, looking back when I started college, I didn't really know the avenues to eventually working in professional basketball, right? So for me, my dad and my uncle were like business guys and econ and accounting are kind of versatile business majors. So Notre Dame was the number one business school at the time. So that's the kind of path that I took and, you know, kept staying involved with hoops at college and started the club team there, which was a great time. And, uh, you know, then, you know, set off for my career from there. Love it. Uh, and so when you were in, in college, you obviously mentioned that you weren't really aware of like how you can translate the business degree or accounting and economics into this pro sports world. At what point did you kind of realize that you want to combine the both or that you can combine the both? Yeah, I would say it was, you know, a couple years into my career at PwC. Um, you know, that was a great place for me to start my career. I, you know, did the CPA thing, uh, you know, travel around to different clients that are these really big, successful Fortune 500 companies, get a real foundation of understanding of like how successful businesses are run and how they work and all of that. But, you know, I still had that passion for basketball in me. and you know, eventually was trying to think of if there were any ways that I could angle my career and kind of direct it, you know, toward hoops in some capacity, which was, it was still pretty unclear at that point. Um, what ended up working out for me was that, uh, so PwC, this is a kind of unique thing for them as compared to a lot of other firms. Every year they have an international basketball tournament where, um, about 13 or 14 different countries around the world that have PwC uh, offices, they pull together a basketball team. Um, so most other countries have like the same players going every year. Cause it's a more limited pool of talent to pick from, but United States, I mean, there's thousands and thousands of people in the States that work for PwC and a lot of people that were like former really good basketball players in college professionally, whatever. And so I somehow finagled my way onto the team in 2016 and, uh, 
and we had some good players. We had, uh, uh, Gabe Newton was uh, CJ McCollum's yep, kind of yep, right Lehigh. hand man on that Lehigh team that took down he, Duke. He's like he, he, he gave us some, but yeah, he gave us some buckets when I was at Quinnipiac. Yep. Yeah, so he he was on the squad. He's a uh, you know he's a CPA now, uh, living the business professional life. But we we had a good team, and uh, you know I was able to contribute to that, and we ended up traveling to Warsaw, Poland that year, and won the championship against China. Uh, they had a current cba player on the team because you were allowed to have like one alumni on your or one alumnus of pwc on your team so that was kind of funny they had like an actual pro on their team That's uh awesome. but that was a really cool experience and then kind of through that i ended up finding out that pwc had this kind of unique special projects sports practice based out of the national office in new jersey um, and so I was able to get in contact with some people through that. And I found out that we had the NBA as a client for the basketball related income salary cap review project. So I got myself onto, you know, that project and for a couple summers was traveling to different teams and, uh, we were taking their reporting packages and making adjustments to them in accordance with the CBA and kind of rolling all of that up to determine the salary cap number on July 1st. So that was kind of my initial sort of pivot in the direction of basketball within the company that I started my career. And then it was kind of, you know, on the side doing other things more in the scouting and talent evaluation space to kind of hone that craft and kind of learn from people who've been in the industry for a while and get that figured out too. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, that, that project with PwC was kind of a perfect foundation to you know to almost make that pivot you know you're kind of doing exactly what you were doing but directly related to the nba and to the salary cap and um you know allowed you to kind of build some relationships so that's that's cool and then uh so let's fast forward a bit here to uh to stats reform where, where you're at now um can you give maybe a, a brief overview to the audience on what stats reform is and uh you know what you do there for your roles and responsibilities yeah, so I made that transition from PwC to Stats Perform in summer of 2018. Um, it's kind of after I had rolled off the NBA project for that summer and felt like I had kind of reached a point of diminishing returns at PwC as far as like, you know, what I was learning. Like, I feel like I had, you know, learned a ton and kind of tapped out and like needed to take that next step in my career and wanted to pivot even further into the, you know, basketball space and uh, stats happened to be located in Chicago, which was convenient for me being based here already. And, uh, you know, just went in person to some sort of recruiting mixer they were hosting and had applied a couple of days before met the head of HR at that mixer. And then, you know, all happened pretty quickly. And just for some background on what stats perform is, uh, our kind of tagline is the DNA of sport. And, you know, effectively what we do is we're providing, you know, different data solutions to big tech, tech companies like Amazon, Google, Apple, Microsoft, uh, broadcasters like ESPN, betting platforms like William Hill, you know, daily fantasy platforms. And then, you know, the most sexy side of it is like the sports leagues and teams, right? We do a lot with soccer, um, we were really entrenched in the NBA with uh, SportView. Like we were the first player tracking solution for basketball with like XY coordinate type stuff. Um, and now we're kind of jumping back into the player tracking space, but a, a little bit of a differentiated angle and covering a different white space there with our product called AutoStats, which uh, just high level is using like computer vision and machine learning to process game broadcasts and derive tracking and event data from those. So it's scalable to NCAA games, international games, uh, FIBA games, and eventually probably, you know, over time and high level AAU and all of that. So uh, when I initially joined Stats, it was more in a finance role, kind of aligned with what my background was in my career to that point. And then over the past few years have kind of further uh, entrenched myself in the basketball side and made the full-time transition here like at the beginning of this year mm. yeah and actually on that topic so, so you mentioned the auto stats kind of project so um one of the ones that i uh 
was reading on that you guys did, I think it was this summer. So it was, it was focused on, and now we're going to kind of shift the, the conversation into more basketball and stats, you know? Yeah. So this project was focused on identifying which draft prospects stood out in ways that are not measurable by traditional statistics. Um, and I think it was the Jericho Sims example where um, it was like, it was rebounding. Right. And so for all the listeners out there, this is, this is super intriguing. I'm sure everyone has their, their own opinions. So maybe you can explain that project. It was just to kind of give it some context for listeners. It was essentially um, saying that traditional rebounding metrics are only results-based and they don't, um, they don't give any value to those that actually like, you know, are aggressive and put their body on the line to back set, uh, box out. So like, you know, the, right. the one rebound could be the ball happens to bounce in your hands, but that's a very different stat one rebound than somebody that, you know, busted their ass to get the rebound. And so yeah. anyways, uh, maybe you can just talk a bit about just that and, and, and how that, how those are calculated uh, for someone that doesn't understand how you could potentially even know that stat. Yeah. So I guess from just like the output and value perspective of the solution itself, like there are like what you're referring to is like the prescriptive stats and, you know, that are more contextual and giving you a deeper lens into who's adding value beyond just box score stuff. So the rebounds are a great example, I think, because like you were alluding to, like, I don't know if you've ever gone in like synergy and just watched, you know, a bunch of uh, individual players rebounds over the course of the season, but you'll be really underwhelmed and bored when you do that, because you'll see like, oftentimes it'll be like 85% of them are just like no one else in the paint uncontested, like free throw rebound or something. And so, you know, just looking at raw rebounds, isn't that helpful of a stat, right? It's like a very loose proxy of actual value of like a team rebound that's collected. So what AutoStats is doing is basically, you know, people are familiar with second spectrum and the tracking data that's always referred to at the NBA level. Uh, we're deriving that from game broadcast. So it's a combo of XY coordinates as to where all players are at a given point in time, where the ball is at, but it's also layering in event level data, like merging play by play and recognizing, you know, pick and rolls or recognizing off ball screens and all of that to derive more nuanced sort of statistics and uh, value. So the box out percentage, I think is maybe what the rebounding stat was with Jericho mm -hmm. Sims. So just based on, you know, when a shot is taken and where the kind of X, Y coordinates are of a given player and the given like offensive rebounder, like, the machine learning algorithm is able to derive like a box out percentage based on how often that player is moving in a certain direction toward the nearest offensive player as the shot is being taken and things like that. Right. That's just like a micro example of all the different like crazy stats that can be derived by something like auto stats. So mm. the prescriptive stats are really cool to be able to like dig through and see, you know, who excels at, you know, certain statistics that you could never derive from box score stuff. Uh, but the real value in something like that is like the predictive value of taking that information and having a historical archive of that information from people who are currently in the NBA. So we have like, you know, 10 years worth of data on guys who are in the NBA now. So you can kind of like retrofit, like, you know, people who are doing this stuff now, what translates well to the NBA level based on these priors and kind of model that and project it far better than you could with just box score stats or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what are some other, what are some other um, stats that are on there that you can predict? Um, or, sorry, not, not that you can predict, but just some other stats that you would find valuable outside of traditional box source box score stats. Yeah. So I, I guess what I would say is, some of the defensive stuff is probably the most interesting because the stats for that are just way less clear and like usually are like steals and blocks again are not the best sort of indicator of value so you can you can get a better gauge as to who's actually like deterring people from even taking shots in the paint you can get a idea of who's doing a good job of like helping and recovering adequately and like covering mm. space quickly. You can get an idea of, you know, who's going over and under screens at what rate and like, 
you know, how opponents fare uh, in that situation. And it's not all just matchup dependent or results based. It's more can be on the team level as well. So if this guy's dying on screens and it's not necessarily his guy who hits the shot thereafter, but it causes a breakdown in the defense and he kicks it to someone else. Like we're, we're tracking all of that sort of stuff. Right. Um, so you know, there are the kind of canned uh, kind of event markings that are kind of standard issue that come out of it. But a lot of teams, when they get their hands on it, really dive into using the X, Y frame by frame stuff in conjunction with those events to make some pretty cool uh, kind of derivative um, type statistics and can funnel those into their models. Mm. And, and this is something that uh, is only available for the collegiate level and pro as of now and not not like high school yeah so right now we started with uh we started with the ncaa because that was like the clearest most obvious white space um with an understanding that like more prospects are obviously coming from abroad than ever before into the draft but like ncaa was the you know clearest white space easiest place to get video for and kind of build this historical archive and we already had a crap ton of like NCAA data at our disposal mm -hmm. to begin with, like with play-by-play -play and everything. So we tackled that first. And then, um, you know, after learning a lot from that, it made it easier for us to then go to, you know, FIBA size courts and the, you know, varying uh, camera angles and differentiated things like from these different leagues around the world. And like, we're a little bit better at being able to like fit our models to that now that we've mastered the NCAA side. And then next on the roadmap is your, your stuff like OTE and, mm -hmm. um, you know, EYBL, Adidas gauntlet, Under Armour, like that, that's what's coming next. But we have NCAA international and last year we did uh, G league ignite as well. Got it. Um, yeah, that's, that's exciting stuff, man. It's definitely interesting to see, um, you know, all the different solutions in the, in the data analytics world. Um, so moving on topics. So obviously with, you know, the last eight minutes of, of uh, context you've given, you've, you've had a, a, a plethora of experience in the sports uh, analytics and data and business world. And so uh, I think that's all kind of led to one decision, which was uh, relatively recent for you to start Rookie Scale. So I want you to uh, give the audience a little bit of an overview on what Rookie Scale is and uh, and why you started it, and then I'll I'll dive into some some uh, some questions that you may receive from you know your Twitter guests and and people asking you about player evaluation. But first, yeah, tell the audience about Rookie Scale. Yeah, so you know, given all that background that we went into, plus you know, leading up the scouting for the PBC for a few years, I've like really entrenched myself into the NBA draft and prospect scouting space. And I'd say over the past year and a half or so, I've started turning out a little bit more like public content in that regard. Um, it just kind of felt like time for me to set up shop with my own, just like place to house that content and um, my own platform to you know, get some interesting, unique information about prospects out there and have it be kind of a free source for people to find some differentiated insight where, you know, I kind of dive into some different aspects of the business or different aspects of uh, the prospect landscape beyond just, you know, analytics or, uh, you know, scouting notes or something, right? Mm. And and talk about some of those differentiation factors. Like there's there's obviously we, we talk about this a lot. There's a there's a whole world of people who are basketball scouts and analysts and Twitter analysts out there. Um, some of which are amazing, and some of which might not have as much experience as you do. Um, so, I mean, how do you essentially differentiate yourself from a lot of those uh, those other scouts? Like, what are some of the things that you can dive into that maybe you know, someone who's posting a, um, a draft, a mock draft might not have. Yeah. So I would say that, you know, that stuff is at the foundation of like any, any scout or talent evaluator is like watching film and, you know, digging through statistics and making sense of them to project forward. Right. But for me, I feel like, you know, especially through the PBC and uh, you know, and then stepping into doing these film rooms and stuff like 
my network has really grown in the agency space. And I feel like, you know, from the outside of looking in, it can often be kind of under under recognize the extent with which the agency side of the business like plays a role in the you know in the draft itself and in undrafted free agents where they get placed like summer league teams everything right like obviously globally as you as you know as well so that just plays a way more prominent role than i think people realize so the combination of having a good understanding of that side of the business tracking kind of who's signing where who's going with who kind of what that means for the draft landscape what teams have history doing business with these agents and these agents and where these agents typically have their best relationships, all of that. I think, I think that's something that, you know, most people who are just like doing scouting from home or something don't really have that sort of sense for that as well as the, you know, the off court stuff and the Intel and trying to dig into that and leverage relationships and actually get to know the players themselves to get a gauge for, you know, the off court stuff, their self-awareness, their personality, like how quickly they can pick up on things. Like, I feel like oftentimes, surely like, you know, the top 150 guys, like there's a talent threshold that you have to be at, but the ones who make it and the ones who don't, once you get past, like, you know, the clear bona fide studs, like it, it often comes down to those types of things. So having a better understanding of that, I think goes a long way when you get past the really obvious, like uber talented guys. Yeah, no, I, I I agree. I think tracking those relationships and all the all the behind the scenes information is something that you do as a um, player evaluator that is above and beyond what um, you know some of the other scouts do. You know, they, they can analyze a player maybe you know in depth more than you do. Even if they did that, you know, all that other stuff is a, is a huge piece of that puzzle. And one of those pieces is the film room. Right. So talk about the film room a bit. I mean, I think, you know, you just mentioned being able to identify the player's character and really learn more about yeah. them. You actually talk to them directly and have them on a live video and kind of break down their game. So, so talk about that a bit. Yeah, that that's been super valuable for me. Um, like, I think I've learned as much or more throughout that process than even anything else is like, so, I mean, the origin of it was when, you know, COVID began in earnest, like was a huge problem in March um, I, of 2020, I kind of was brainstorming like, okay, like PBC's probably not happening this year. Uh, the draft, who knows how long it's going to be till the draft, like what could I do during this time in the safe confines of my own home that would be interesting to both like, you know, casual fans and to draft nerds and valuable to you know, potential like front office people, right. As they're kind of going through this really, um, influx kind of, uh, bizarre pre-draft process. Like what can I do to during this time to like add value? Um, so I started spinning that up and, uh, I think, you know, Mike Schmidt started doing it around the same time as well. And it, it kind of worked nicely because he was, you know, he's picking off the guys that are the top five picks, top 10 picks in the draft. And I'm, you know, working on the kind of fringe first round, to second mm -hmm. round, two-way type guys. And it was just a great process. Like, I, I feel like I got a good sort of uh, sense for a lot of these guys and what they're like off the court. Like, you can derive a lot, even just based on the interactions that you have in organizing the meetings with them, right? Mm -hmm. Like, there's some, there's some guys that are, like, super buttoned up and, like, all on top of everything, and they want their clips ahead of time so they can look at them and think about it. And they're, they show up early to the zoom call and all those sorts of things that seem like nothing, like you can get a gauge as to what a guy is like, just based on that alone. And then once you get into the film itself, it's just really interesting to see that perspective of how a guy reads the game, how a guy kind of thinks through decision-making within, you know, the context of a given play in a game and how they're able to talk through when you're going through say improvement areas or go through a couple of clips where they're not excelling. Uh, it's interesting to see how they kind of take that and are able to, you know, be self-aware, like self-awareness, I think is one of the number one things in my book from as far as like off court Intel scouting stuff. And I, I mean, I would say that based on going through all of those film rooms with 40 ish guys in that, 
pre-draft process, it was usually the ones that were pretty self-aware and sharp guys and like genuinely good guys are the ones that have kind of cracked it and made it even if they were undrafted. Mm. Yeah, that's definitely a, a big time um, differentiator for, for people just watching kind of your evaluations. But I think, you know, you, you mentioned self-awareness. I think being able to watch film and identify their, 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 their skills and their, their weaknesses and strengths is one thing, but asking them and having them talk through it is a whole nother ball game. You really get to, you know, think inside their mind and, uh, and see, you know, guys that can balance the confidence of knowing they're really good, but also have that humbleness of saying, you know, I know that I don't know everything and here's what I need to work yeah. on to get to the next level is huge. Um, yeah, definitely. And you can tell the guys that it's kind of second nature to them already. Like they're already guys that are kind of film junkie junkies and value yeah. that process. Uh, like you can tell pretty immediately. And, you know, that goes a long way for me. Obviously I, didn't have the chance to talk to, you know, every prospect that was relevant in the draft. So you don't want to like overweigh that relative to guys you haven't had the chance to speak to, but like, it's definitely a check on the, on the good side of the equation there for guys that showed well in that regard. Definitely. And, and so how much of that uh, character Intel, how they think off court stuff goes into your overall, like I call it like algorithm of identifying how good a player is. And, 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 you know, I guess maybe if you could break down like from a 30,000 foot view, maybe some categories of like, how do you determine whether a player is good? You got your film, you got your stats, you got your advanced stats, you got your character, you got your, you know, your Intel, what's, what's in, uh, what's in John's algorithm to, to identify talent. Yeah. I, I mean, all that stuff's definitely in there. I don't know that I have like a, uh, no one has like a perfect formula for it, but I, I would say that I, I value the stuff we were just talking about quite a bit. Like, you know, especially once you get past, you know, the top 40 or so clear, clear guys, like, you know, if you're a guy who's relatively on the fringes and you, you know, you don't have your shit together, like that's not a guy I'm going to bet on. It's just not, you're already mm -hmm. fighting a bit of an uphill battle. Yes. Right. So, you know, that, that's definitely, like any sort of character or whatever, like yellow flags, once you're on the fringes, it's basically a red flag from an NBA perspective, right? Mm -hmm. you, you know, once you get a little further up the line, like, you know, sometimes the talent, talent is talent, but it still factors way into the equation within like a given range, like it might push you more toward the bottom, or I might not be, you know, theoretically willing to spend a the investment of a first round pick on you with a guaranteed rookie scale deal, but might be willing to assign you to some, you know, partially guaranteed or one year guaranteed with non-guaranteed stuff in the early to mid second or something from my perspective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So that stuff factors in a lot. Uh, but then obviously, you know, film and stats are like the, the foundation of everything. And, you know, they're typically for a given player, I try to watch, you know, four to five games and, and then also dig through a bunch of queued up different clips of different possession types and things like that. I mean, can't do that for everyone just based on time constraints, right? That's not feasible, but that's, that's like an ideal case for, you know, guys that I'm trying to get a feel for. And then there are certain players that just given their specific role or what they are, it can be a little more obvious, like even faster than that. Right. Right. And, and so t talk about maybe a specific role. So let's just say you're looking at a, um, uh, you know, a, a shooter, right? Like you, yeah. you're, you're, you're evaluating a three point shooter or someone that scores a lot. Are there certain benchmarks that you have from a traditional box score standpoint where you're like, Hey, this guy is pretty good, but he's shooting 34% from three. Like that's not going to cut it. Or wow. He hit 42%, you know, in two of his last, three years in college, like, is there a benchmark stat wise for, for a shooter? Yeah. So that, I mean, there's definitely stuff like that to, to consider in a, in a variety of ways, like a Davion Mitchell was an interesting one this past year where he shot like, you know, 45% from three this year. But if you go look back historically, like he was not a very good shooter prior in his career and he's a bad free throw shooter, you know, relative to his position. So you wonder like, was it just, you know, hot shooting or, you know, some shooting luck on a smaller sample from three in one year? Like you, you ask those types of questions all the time, but just from like a, a macro level, like 
sure, you, you, you know, you kind of try to go see if this guy looks like his whole role is going to be a shooting specialist. Surely you'd like to see it be above like the, you know, 36 and change 37% kind of NBA average from three, if that's what you're going to do. Um, but then you got to look into the splits, like if it's, you know, catch and shoot stuff and like unguarded stuff versus a guy who has some, you know, heavy usage role where they're on the ball and like shooting off the dribble and kind of the focal point, like you have to kind of weigh those things accordingly, I think, uh, based on the specific context of, you know, how that guy gets their shots, you know what I mean? Right. And that could be, I mean, that's, that's kind of just, uh, uh, um, shameless plug for auto stats, I guess. Right. I mean, like finding out where, where the guy is on the court, like when he's shooting that shot and is he wide open or does he have a hand in his face? And, um, I guess similarly, you know, you can say, Hey, this guy shoots 38% from three, um, which is, which is great. But what if, um, you know, what if there's two guys that have that same stat and one of them has a 25% usage rate versus a 40% usage rate. And, you know, like one might, you know, need to pass more at the next level or whether they're going to the NBA or overseas. So, so yeah, how would you differentiate? I mean, do you then let's just say you say, okay, this guy's a great shooter, 38% from three. Would you then have to, in order to um, contextualize that usage percentage, say, Hey, well, if he goes to this team, his role might be this, but if he goes to that team, he might need to pass more. And so, I mean, I guess you can just continue to get deeper and deeper and deeper in the, yeah, in the yeah this is, yeah, this is why like no NBA team has figured it out perfectly right. because there's just so much context to it. But like, yeah, you, you got to look at, you look at volume, right? Like, like, you know, okay, this guy's a 38% shooter on two and a half threes a game, or this guy's 38% on eight threes a game. Mm-hmm. And this guy's 38%, you know, hitting some shots off the dribble. And he happens to be, you know, six, seven with a six, nine wingspan versus this guy's six, four with a six, five wingspan. Yep. Like, who's going to be a better shooter at the next level. It's probably safer to bet on the, you know, the guy that's taking more shots and is Baker. Right. Um, But yeah, I mean, and then that sort of equation changes based on what your theoretical role is as you slide down the different tiers in the draft. Right. So like these guys that are kind of high usage bona fide scorers, like those guys are valuable at the top of the draft when they're like, you know, six, six and create their own shot. And like, you know, are these kind of uber talented guys, but once you get past a certain sort of threshold and the talent sphere and then like the, you know, different tiers in the draft, like it's really hard to be one of these guys. that's this super high usage, small guard uh, and make it in the NBA. Like I'm once you get past like pick 40 or whatever, you're more so looking for guys that have these ancillary skills that can fit certain more role player type roles, as opposed to guys that like got buckets uh, because of their specific team context or something. Right. Yep. Uh, if you're, if you're listening and you're an aspiring pro and you get buckets, if you will, please rewind that and play it again, because not all guys that get buckets at certain levels are, uh, are going to make the NBA. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, in the sec, in the, you know, later second round, you're looking for oftentimes for guys that, you know, have the physical attributes, like are maybe a three or a four man that have a long wingspan and can guard multiple positions and can maybe hit spot up jumpers when they're open and just kind of do the small things, maybe like make simple passing reads when they're asked to like those kind of guys are guys that have better chances of sticking uh, on the fringe than like, you know, six foot guards that have the ball in their hands all the time. So like, you know, like say Jay Sean Tate is a good example of a guy who, you know, he was a PBC guy back in 2018, started his career overseas, was in Belgium and then went to Australia and, you know, was an absolute star for the Sydney Kings there. But, you know, that's a guy that he didn't get drafted, but fills a lot of those boxes that I, or checks a lot of those boxes that I was just referring to. Right. Like, he's strong for his position. He's maybe a little undersized, you know, technically for his position, but like, you know, battles really hard as a smart positional player can make passing reads, like guard multiple positions. Those are the kinds of guys that you bet on beyond like the top 40. Definitely. And I guess pun intended there, it's a beyond client and I always root for those guys. So, so we want him to, uh, to succeed there. Um, So Let's see here. As we wrap up, uh, a couple more questions I have for uh, for my guests. So for you, 
Um, what has been one of the biggest challenges that you've faced in your, in your career? Um, and how have you overcome that? Oh man, I, I guess, I guess like in this kind of, in this industry specifically, or like sports business stuff in general, and I'm sure you can kind of attest to this as well. And I mean, I know you can from listening to past podcasts and our own conversations, but you know, there's just going to be a ton of times where you just have to accept that everybody's path is sort of different and that there'll be these moments of frustration along the way where, you know, certain like established people in the industry might not, you know, necessarily show you the time of day or like, you know, even when I'm say I'm reaching out to agents to try to facilitate doing a film room with one of their players or something like some guys will just like ignore you, you know? Uh, And that stuff's going to happen. And like, you know, you certainly like, you know, can be discouraged by it in the moment, but you got to recognize at the same time, like, you know, those people are probably having people hit them up all the time and are really busy. And like, you can't like hold it against these people. You just got to like, you know, keep your head down and keep going, keep working on your craft, keep like building yourself up, building these genuine relationships in the industry. And then, you know, eventually things will fall into place, I would say. So I would say that that stuff happens a lot uh, because you have to kind of be your own advocate and be out there kind of like trying to make moves and make stuff happen, but it's not always going to be, you know, received. So that, that's what I would say. That's, that's a great, that's a great piece of advice. And uh, you know, it, just like there's an oversaturation of players who want to make the NBA, there's an oversaturation even more so. And, um, and, and, you know, magnified the amount of people that want to be involved in the sports industry. So, yeah. you know, the, it's not going to be an easy path. So I, I love that advice. And then the last question I have it, question I have is for someone that is listening that, that might want to, get their foot in the door for, um, you know, becoming a scout or becoming, uh, you know, uh, on the business side of, of, uh, of basketball. What, what's a piece of advice that you have for them just to, just to get rolling? Yeah, I guess I'll say two things. One would be, I guess, you know, people have different viewpoints on like being super, super specialized in one specific thing versus being versatile. Uh, I would say like be as versatile as you can and kind of, you know, take some time here and there to acquire new skills and be as well-rounded in the, you know, say it's basketball scouting, be as well-rounded in the space as you can, like have a foundational knowledge of, uh, you know, scouting of analytics, like maybe try to, you know, take some time to teach yourself, uh, you know, Python or, SQL or R online or something from an analytics perspective, like you don't have to be a wizard at like every single aspect that goes into this, like, but, you know, take some time to read the CBA and learn the CBA and like try to have a baseline understanding of all the stuff that's important, but then also, you know, find your specific niche that you are most passionate about and you think can be your differentiator, right? Like don't let anything stand in the way as far as you not having the baseline sort of requisite understanding or skills, but also know what you thrive at and what is your most likely in. Um, that would be my main piece of advice. And then the second thing I would say is like, be at least a little bit careful about, uh, like being super matter of fact and like you, you know, like if you're posting stuff on social or on, you know, your website or blog or whatever, like, don't just, you know, throw stuff out there and throw opinions and takes and stuff out there like that, that, you know, come off as you feel like, you know, everything. Cause like none of us, none of us know everything. No one's like certain about this. This is one of the kind of most challenging things there is, is like projecting talent. So, you know, don't be overly matter of fact, don't be overly negative. Uh, I would also say that don't, you know, don't go out there and like shit on some front office or something, or, you Mm -hmm. know, poke, even if it's in like some manner of jest, like don't do that. Like you might get some, you know, some likes or traction on social media, but that's hurting your career path in the long run. Even if it's not even with that specific team, like that's doing, you no justice. And so I think if you remember that and remember that these players that you're evaluating are also people, 
uh, those are some kind of good rules of thumb to live by as well. Man, those are, those are fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, there's, there's difference between being, you know, bold enough to make a projection that, you know, you're not afraid of, of being wrong about, but there's a balance between saying I'm certain, and this is what it's going to be. And, you know, pretend like, you know, everything. So man, those are, those are all gems, man. Um, well, this is awesome. Before we officially wrap up, you know what the deal is at the end here. Um, it's a sports business lightning round. So I'm going to fire some questions at you and you got to hit me with the first thing that comes to your mind. All right, let's do it. Here we go. Favorite color. Green. Most points you've ever scored in a game in your life. Probably like, uh, like 31, maybe. Pizza or pasta? Pizza. MJ or LeBron? I'm, I'm going to go MJ, but I'm going to say it's, it's real close now. It's like it's, it's getting pretty tight. We'll take that one. One of the coolest cities in the world that you've ever been to. Oh, um, I'm going to say Bangkok. Um, I went there on my honeymoon to Thailand with my wife and, uh, we started our trip in Bangkok and bounced around a few different islands and stuff, and then went back there at the end. And that was just, you know, really unique and like nowhere I'd ever been before. That's right. I remember you telling me that I I would agree. If you have not been to Bangkok, it is a, it is a really cool place. Um, what is something that you're really bad at? Oh man. Um, I would say like, I would say that like, you know, in my day-to-day interactions with people, like I'm, you know, pretty positive and happy-go-lucky and can maintain my, my cool and stuff. But I, I, I am pretty bad at being overly kind of critical with myself and getting really frustrated, uh, kind of behind the scenes and to, you know, that can, negatively impact my productivity or negatively impact my outlook for short periods of time. Like I, I think I could probably stand to, you know, control my frustration in those instances a little bit better, honestly. Um, even if it is, you know, not necessarily impacting my interactions with others, like just on, on a self level, I could be a little bit better with that. We all have things we got to work on. Um, what is one of your biggest strengths? Um, I mean, for me, I, I think I can relate with people pretty well. And I think I can, I can do a decent job of, you know, taking something that's, you know, relatively abstract or foreign to somebody and try to communicate it in a more layman's terms and kind of express express kind of the value or express what's going on with something to somebody in a simple way. That's a complicated idea. Uh, I think I can do a decent job with that. Who are three people that have helped you tremendously in your life? Uh, I guess I'll say uh, my brother is probably a good example uh, of one. Um, He is two years younger than me. And he is, um, like on the autism spectrum. Um, so he's the one that back in the day got us all into Notre Dame to begin with. So firstly, I have him to thank for me, uh, even going to Notre Dame or being of interest to me, which has led to a lot of, uh, other things, but secondly, have obviously just like learned so much from him over the years and, uh, just, you know, having him as a brother has taught me a lot of things with, uh, you know, emotional intelligence and patience and, you know, brings a lot of things into perspective. Uh, so that would be one. Um, I mean, I'm going to kind of be your standard run of the mill person who's saying family people for yeah. all of this. Like I'll lump my parents into one, uh, as well. Um, I mean, they've, they've always, always supported me through, you know, everything through basketball, through, uh, you know, my pro- professional career when things were, you know, could get really difficult. Um, and, you know, through any other just like personal, emotional type things, my parents have always been there to support me. So I'll say them. And then uh, I'll say my wife, lastly. So, uh, you know, we met at Notre Dame and, you know, I've been together since like junior, senior year of college. And uh, she's very supportive of, my pursuits of a career in the basketball industry and, you know, is pretty 
receptive and open to the idea that, uh, you know, that could take me uh, elsewhere. Like she's from Chicago. We live in Chicago, but like, she's very open to like, if an opportunity that makes sense arises to me, I, you know, we could move. And she's very understanding of, you know, when I'm traveling down to Tampa for a few days with you out of, out of nowhere (laughs) to go see the Tampa pro combine or going out to Vegas for summer league or this, that, and the other thing, like she's, you know, really cool about all that. Um, so definitely need to thank her as far as, uh, you know, my ability to be proactive in being places, which you and I both know is like really important in this industry. Definitely. I need to thank her as well. So thank you for allowing John to hang out with me, <laughs> hang out with me in Tampa. Um, what was your first ever job? Um, I was doing some stuff for my, my uncle uh, works for Toshiba business solutions. Um, like I was saying, he's like a finance accounting type guy. Um, but Toshiba business solutions uh, does stuff with like selling copiers and like uh having people service copiers and things like that. Um, so I was working for their, their Pittsburgh office. I was learning some accounting stuff, um, you know, with his accounting team, but also was helping with like the, you know, the, the warehouse in the back and like the purchasing department and like went out on a couple like random service calls here and there and like helping build out some processes within uh, that specifically to help drive more efficiency and like tracking and answering service calls and getting them turned around as soon as possible. So is it like an accounting slash, you know, purchasing operations internship there when I was in high school? Getting thrown in the fire early. I love it. Yeah. Um, if you could have a superpower, what would it be? Um, have you seen the movie Jumper? I feel like I have. It's, uh, I think it's Hayden Christensen. Christensen. He's like, uh, he's in like the Star Wars one, two, and three movies. He's uh, Anakin Skywalker in those. Eventually, is that the one where he just like, like, is it, yeah. is able to kind of transport like immediately to wherever? You, okay, okay. Yeah, Continue. yeah. So that he has that power where he can basically just like, you know, think of somewhere and then just immediately, you know, can just disappear and land land there like that that would be it jumper would be it i would have to agree with that one i like that one and last two here if you could trade jobs with anyone in any industry for one week just to live life in their shoes who would it be oh man i guess man that's a good question I'm going to say uh, I'd be interested in in Adam Silver's role because like I, I feel like I've, you know, obviously I have not worked in a front office, but I, you know, I know enough people and have enough relationships there and to have an understanding of how how things kind of go and operate. But like, you know, at Adam Silver's specific position, like in having to kind of you know, adhere to the owners, but also having his hands in like so many other aspects of the business and dealing with so many random things that pop up and having to adjust on the fly and, you know, look out for the, you know, what's best for everybody in the league, knowing that you're going to be stepping on other people's toes by doing one thing. Like he's just got a lot on his plate. So I'd be really interested to, you know, kind of see things through his lens for that period of time and see how he operates and is able to like balance all of that. Yeah, that, that would be uh, a very cool job to see, but also maybe a week's enough because I know it's yeah. not an easy job, that's for sure. Um, yeah. And last one here, if you could turn back time and talk to 18-year-old John, what would you tell him? Um, I guess, uh, I mean, part of this, I mean, this is not a huge deal, but this is just thinking back, you know, if I was entering college right now, right? Uh you know, the accounting and economics path was, you know, totally fine and like worked out well for me. And, you know, all of that, you know, has gotten me to where I am now, which is great. But I I think I would have really valued looking back if I would have gotten more into like uh, learning programming and, you know, data analytics type stuff earlier on. And had that been like kind of at the core and foundation of like what I was learning in college. So, you know, maybe I would have, you know, even just minored in something like that or kind of sought out like 
um, you know, working on that um, side of things earlier, because that's, you know, whether it's in professional sports or just anywhere, like that's such a differentiator and where things are headed now. Um, so I've started to learn that over the past, you know, year and a half or so here and did like a boot camp and stuff. But like, that's something that I would have loved to like been into at that point in time. Got it. And yep. also invest in Bitcoin. Oof, that would be a great one when you're 18. That would be, I think you'd be, uh, you'd be living lavishly. Maybe you, you might even be able to pay for some sort of surgery that makes you jump to different spots right away. If you had <laughs> That's that. right. Um, well, that was great, man. Um, you passed with flying colors. Um, hindsight's always 2020. Uh, so that's why we asked the questions. Thanks for coming on. This was awesome. I know a lot of people out there uh, learned a lot, as have I over the past several years from picking your brain. So I appreciate uh, appreciate our relationship and all the stuff that I'm able to learn from you. And I'm excited to uh, to get back in the gym with you here soon. Yeah, man, this was fun. I know we you know talk pretty frequently, but it, it was fun to like hop on and dive into all this. Appreciate you having me on as a guest. Uh, I, I don't. I can't say honestly that I'm looking forward to listening to the pod because I hate listening to myself back afterwards. But I hope everyone else enjoys it. And yeah, definitely looking forward to getting back in the gym here soon. And uh, you know, hopefully, I can uh, you know provide you some perspective here and there as you you know, set off on your recruiting trail for uh, 2022. I'm looking forward to that. All right, brother. We'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. See you, KT. Thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to me if you could give it a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're feeling really crazy, you can even share it on social media. As always, if there's a topic you want me to talk about further or a guest you would love to hear on the podcast, just shoot me a message on social media at Kevin Tarka. Thanks again, and I'll see you here tomorrow morning on Sports Business Secrets.